This is where we're going to be spending our next six weeks together is in this gospel. We were going to be reading today chapter 1, beginning from verse 1 to verse 18. Now on the screen, you only see verses 14 to 18, but if you have your physical Bibles, follow along with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 to give some context. Let's, so let's stand together as we read God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, for showing us your mind and your heart and your desires and sending your Son, who is the exact imprint of your nature, to reveal who you really are, so that we may behold your glory and your beauty. And so we ask now as we come to your word, may you help us to do that. Help us to see your glory and your beauty to see that you are full of grace and truth. Incline our heart to your testimonies, we pray now, for your glory's sake and our joy. Amen. Well, I want to take you to a time two years ago, not so much in a distant past, to an experience that I had in my own life. It was two years ago in a couple months that I was sitting at Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee, and we were at the Sing Conference, and it was a full day of singing, listening to preachers, listening to spoken word artists, and each session, if you don't know, lasted about three hours at the Sing Conference, but you would never guess that it was three hours because there's so many different things that were going on and there's so much involvement. And so at the end of the day, 
before the very last session, before the very last speaker came up to preach, there was a movie trailer that came on the screen. And the movie trailer was about the movie Sabina. It was titled Sabina, and it was about Sabina and Richard Warmbrand, who were the ones who, if you know, started the voice of the martyrs in these books that you can read about those who have died for the faith. And the scene of the trailer starts off with them in Germany during a time of World War II where there is persecution and against the Jews. And in this trailer, they were helping Jews to escape and also helping German soldiers come to the faith through the love that they showed them. And there was this vivid scene in the movie where they came to the place where they were going to exit Germany. And Sabina opens up the Word of God and is reading from Mark, which says, If the one who is going to gain this world is going to lose his soul, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it. And they turn the car around and they stay where God had planted them. And at the very end of the trailer, the verse comes up once again from the Gospel of Mark. Whoever is going to gain this world is going to lose his soul. Whoever loses it for my sake will find it. As the trailer ended, I was drawn to want to watch that movie. And more than that, I was actually heavily impressed by the imagery that I just saw. There was a weightiness upon my heart, and not only did I want to watch the movie, but I began to reflect on my own life, what is the purpose of my life, my mission, and my values. And it was ultimately that movie trailer, and obviously God's greater work in my life, through which I ended up here at Gateway Bible Church. And so our passage this morning, as we're looking at the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses, John is presenting to us a movie trailer about what the rest of the Gospel of John is going to be about. We see the mission of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He revealed who God is, full of grace and truth. We see here the deity of Christ in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, that He is God. We see also the life and the ministry of Christ, that He is the true light, in verse 9, that gives light to everyone. And now these themes of light and these themes of light and these themes that God is, deity, are going to be fleshed out through the rest of the Gospel of John. It is because John is going to show through this gospel that who we believe Jesus to be will dictate how we treat him. I want you to hear that once again this morning, that who we believe Jesus to be will dictate how we treat him in our life. And so through the gospel of John, we see various people who treat Christ differently because they believe he's a prophet or because he's a good teacher or if he is the Messiah. And so this morning, as Pastor Rod already mentioned, we're beginning a new series called Christmas According to Jesus. And in the next six weeks, we're going to be studying various aspects about Christ. I think usually when it comes to Christmas, we think of the nativity scene, we think about the birth of Jesus, nice little sheep hanging around the manger and carols, but it is much more than that. We want to look not only about the birth of Christ, but also look about the prophecies regarding Christ. What did Christ ultimately fulfill? The life of Christ. What kind of example did he leave for us to follow? The atonement of Christ that ultimately covers our sin and brings us salvation. And lastly, 
the abundant life that he has called us to live in him because we have received, as we already read, grace upon grace. The idea here is to look at the complete picture of Christ. And as we are going to be in the Gospel of John, I want to highlight a few things. If you've been in the faith for a very long time, you know this gospel well. And if you're a new believer, you are learning about Christ through this gospel. But Leon Morris, he compares this gospel and he says this. The fourth gospel is a pool in which a child can wade in and an elephant can swim in. And so wherever you're at in your faith, you will find that when you look to Christ, you can be just marveled by His glory. There are 27 interviews found in this gospel. Each chapter is an account of Jesus talking with somebody. And these I am statements that we are very much aware of, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth, and life. I am the true vine. John's presentation of, Je of who Jesus is lies at the heart of this gospel. And so as we are going to be looking this morning about Christ, about the one who is the true representation of God, it is important for us in our life to continue to look to him and see him in the right light. Because I thought to myself, there's two ways, two things that can happen if we don't. Number one, a wrong view of Christ will lead us to diminish his glory and substitute him for lesser things. A wrong view of not seeing Christ as the true vine, the good shepherd, the light, and the bread of life who can satisfy, will lead us to diminish his glory and substitute him for lesser things. And second, secondly, just as John is an evangelistic gospel, that all may come to know who Christ is, a wrong view about Christ will lead you to misrepresent his worth to the watching world. Christmas and the season is beyond just time of family getting together, of us opening presents, getting to hang out and bonfire or fireplaces in our home and family and friends coming together. It is about the fact that Christ has transformed our life by the gospel, and there are people that we're going to be sitting around with at the dinner table and neighbors who we're going to be interacting with to whom we can display this glorious Christ. And so, John's desire is for us to really understand clearly who Christ is. And so this morning, the idea I want to leave you with is this. The Word became flesh, a true representation of God. And we're going to see three sides of Christ. Jesus as the advocate, Jesus as the Savior, and Jesus who is the ambassador. First, we'll begin in verse 14 with Jesus as the advocate. And we're going to highlight a few things about the Word became flesh, this idea of the incarnation. We all know about the incarnation, but the question here lies, why is John bringing up this idea already a couple times? In verse 1, he speaks about the Word, and in verse 14, he says the Word became flesh. Well, if you've studied 1 John and the Gospel of John, you know that during the first century, there's this heresy that was going around called Gnosticism. And at the essence, this heresy said that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. God is good, but matter is evil. So a good God cannot become matter, become a person. John here writes that Christ took on flesh. 
they would say that Christ had an appearance of a human body, but not a real body. Second, they didn't believe that God could have created the whole universe because God could, have not, could not have created evil matter. But John here clearly writes in verses 1 through 4 that the Word was God, He was in the beginning, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not, was not anything made that was made. And the last part of Gnosticism was this idea that you could never know God. God is somewhere above. He is beyond our understanding. He is unknowable. And this gave rise to many lesser spiritual beings that we could relate to, that people could relate to in the first and second century, instead of a God who is above all things. But here we see that the Word, God Himself, became flesh and became knowable. And so John is combating these ideas of Gnosticism. And so this is why he begins, the Word became flesh. John is arguing that he who is God became human matter. He was the Word that existed. And look at this progression of verses 1 through 4 and then again in 14. The Word was with God. He was next to God. The Word was God. This is the theme that's going to be carried out throughout the whole book. And <clears throat> he was in the beginning with God. Again, it's the second time that John states in the first few verses. If I told you that I was with the president or having dinner with Steph Curry, you would think that I'm lying because not everybody can be at that position. <laughs> but this is what John is saying about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the authority and he is God and he's at the right hand of God. So there's no doubt that Jesus is God. Now, interestingly, of all the things that John could use to describe Jesus, he uses the term word, or in Greek, logos. In verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh. Why does he not just say, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus became flesh? Well, we use words to communicate. Whether we write a note to our wife or text a friend, or we speak verbally face-to-face -face or over the phone, we use words to communicate with one another. What are you doing when you are speaking? You are expressing the thoughts that you have. You're expressing your desires. Think about it this way. If no one ever expressed thoughts, if no one ever expressed desires, there would never be any books written, and the world would be silent. Now, that's also true if you take a bunch of teenagers and put them into a room. It's going to still stay silent because of the iPhone. But here, John is pointing towards something. The Word is connected with God's powerful work. In the Old Testament, we often see that, the work of creation, revelation, and deliverance. We see in Psalm 33, by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. This is it's speaking about creation. God said what? Let there be light. Words relating to Revelation, Jeremiah, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, or Isaiah, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, or words for deliverance. God sent forth his word and healed them. As Psalm 107 says, he rescued them from the grave. And so Moses, as we already read about Moses here, Moses hears the divine name of God spoken, and then it's followed by God's written word in the Ten Commandments. But now John tells us God's word, his self-expression has become flesh. 
And so the question is, what does this word do? Of all things you would think about, in verse 14, if a human man were writing the Bible, it would say, and the word became glorified, and the word became above all things, and the word was set up high above all else. But interestingly, in God's economy, things look a little different, and the word became flesh. God, who is infinite, becomes finite. Man, the Word became flesh. What do we know of God? Well, in regards to His holiness, when the people of Israel make a calf, He tells Moses He's going to destroy the people, but Moses steps in. Moses can't see the glory of God and live, so God hides him in a cleft of a rock. Read in Isaiah 6 that there are the angels that are flying around Christ crying, holy, 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 and they need, they need wings to cover themselves because of God's holiness. And John says that this same word through whom all the earth was created, everything was made, and not anything was made that was made, and the one in whom is life is the one who becomes flesh. How often during this time, during this season, does it amaze us that we are celebrating this idea that the invisible, the unknowable, intangible, immeasurable, and eternal God who is spirit takes on visibility, is able to be known, touched, measured, and finite by taking on human flesh. This is what John speaks about in 1 John chapter 1. He says that the one we have touched and tasted and handled, who? The Word of life. We lived life with this one who is Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. He took on himself a sinless human nature. This is why the virgin birth is important because he is not from human seed. He's from the eternal seed. So he, this is why virgin birth is important. And so he identifies with us in every aspect from birth to death. This is why the very first point that I am presenting and illustrating this idea that Christ is our advocate. He is fully human. This is what leads him to be able to be the one who represents us, to be our high priest before the Father. You see, the Word was not an abstract concept, a philosophy, but a real person who could be seen, touched, and heard. And so in the Gospel of John, John points to Jesus experienced various things that we experience. Jesus was weary. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus groaned within. He openly wept. How many of you wept when you thought about getting together with family on Thanksgiving? No, just kidding. How many of you have wept in your life, going through grief and hardship, and Jesus wept when he saw his close friend Lazarus die and the people around him? Jesus thirsted, Jesus died, and he bled. I think Spurgeon helps us to understand this, as he often helps us to understand many things, of why we don't stand in awe and wonder of the Incarnation as much as we should. He writes this, You and I can have no idea of how high an honor it is to be equal with God. We have no idea how high of an honor it is to be equal with God. 
How can we, therefore, measure the descent of Christ with our highest thoughts when our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which He came? The depth to which He descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached, and the height from which He came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought. <laughs> so why aren't we always shocked at the resurrection? Because we have never been in heaven to understand the glories of heaven, nor have we been down to the depths where Christ was living as a servant, and then ultimately taken on the cross for us to really see what, what is that gap that Christ came from, that he experienced. David Jeremiah adds this, if anyone had the right to be self-centered, it was Jesus Christ. He had existed throughout eternity. If we were to understand the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, we must try to comprehend the lofty position he held before he was made man. Not only had Christ existed eternally, but he had existed eternally as God. And not only John is highlighting that the Word became flesh, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The dwelling of God back with His people. It, it, it is that which is the, the culmination of what the Old Testament was all about. It's what we were preaching on through the book of Ezra when God is going to restore worship, but it didn't happen then, is because the new covenant had not yet come. It was just a promise in Jeremiah 30, 33 and Ezekiel 31, where there was going to be this new covenant that was going to change the hearts of people. There was going to be the one who was going to dwell with the people. Who was it going to be? God wanted to dwell with his people, and so he built the tabernacle so that the people could be with him. And this is the exact same word here used in the English word dwelt in the Greek. It's kineo. It's the tabernacle. He came and he tabernacled and he lived among us. What is the significance of the tabernacle? Well, in the Old Testament, it was a tent of meeting. It's a place where the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. In Exodus, Moses hears a divine name spoken by God, followed by God's written, written uh, words on tablets. And now, John is writing that he has experienced this same one who dwelt with them face to face. In Hebrews 1, we read that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man when the word became flesh. And this is why when we read this verse, verse 14, we're reminded that Christ is our advocate, Christ is our high priest, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in this, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see the humiliation of Christ. We see the incarnation that Christ became man so that he could live a perfect and sinless life and then pass on his righteousness to us while taking upon himself our sinfulness. And this idea of God desiring to dwell with his people. He tabernacled with them. He tabernacled with them. And beyond that, there's a reason why he did that. God wanted to reveal himself. So, 
not only can Jesus represent us as our advocate, but Jesus also is our Savior. And before we move on to the next point, I want to ask you this morning. This past weekend, we experienced a lot of advertising, text messages, sales 50% off, 80% off. Get ready, stock up for Christmas. The biggest spending happens literally in the last six weeks of the year. In the frenzy of shopping, of Cyber Monday that's happening tomorrow and Black Friday that happened two days ago, are we in awe of the fact that infinite God became finite man? Of all the places that our, that our thoughts could run, of all the places and all the things that we can do, have we yet sat down to think about how infinite God, who is holy, has took on human flesh to become our substitute? In all of the chaos of uh, the shopping that's been going on and the preparation for Thanksgiving and New Year, have we, in Christmas, have we sat down and thought about this idea that this season is a time where we can dwell on this thought that Christ came to dwell with us, that He came to be with us, that He wants to spend time with us, and He gave us time so we could spend it with Him amidst all of the other time that we could be spending in a given day and during these holidays. And so, Christ is not only our advocate, Jesus is also the Savior. He is full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. John writes that Jesus dwelled among us, but he adds another thing. We have seen His glory. Now, John, of course, had seen the glory of Jesus Christ. He lived with Christ for many years. John had been walking. He had seen, touched, and felt as he also wrote in 1 John. We know this idea of glory is this idea of weight or, or heaviness. But also, I think it is helpful for us to see glory in Isaiah 6. And in Isaiah 6, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. I want to read... Just one verse, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. And this definition of glory I, I heard from a modern theologian. <laughs> and I would like to share it with you because I think it helps to encompass what really, what does glory truly mean? We hear the word oftentimes, we talk about want to glorify God, we speak about God's glory, but what is God's glory if we could put a finger on it? In Isaiah chapter 6, we see obviously this image of the Lord who is Christ sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, which had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And here in verse 3, we see one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Separate is God, unlike any other is the Lord of hosts. That is who he is, and then the whole earth is full of his, and you would guess, holiness. But that's not what Isaiah writes. That's not what the seraphim says. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so, when the holiness, if we can define glory this way, when the holiness of God goes on display on the earth, it becomes his glory. God's holiness is an attribute of God. When that holiness is made visible on earth to us, 
it is His glory. So when John writes that we've beheld the glory of God, he says that I beheld holiness, the, the separateness of His mercy, the uniqueness of it, the uniqueness of the power of Christ in calming the seas and raising the dead and healing the sick. He said, I've experienced the justice of Christ. I've experienced the glory of His humility. Washing the disciples' feet in that upper room, the separateness of God, the holiness of God. And when God's holiness went on display, John said, I beheld His glory. It's different. It's unlike anyone else. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And how is this glory described? It's full of grace and truth. So, if you're ever wondering why there are four Gospels, four different accounts of Christ's life, now we know. We become what we behold, and God has left for us four accounts of the life of Christ and then also the work of Christ in the book of Acts so that we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And by looking to Him, by becoming, we become what we behold. And the more that we behold Christ, the more that we become like Him. His glory is full of grace and truth. This answers the question, how is Jesus like? And this is actually one of those awesome characteristics that God would call us both for all of us to have, a balance of grace and truth. In this passage, John alludes often to Moses. There's a comparison between Jesus and Moses. And so as John is writing, verse 14 there's no shadow of a doubt. He's thinking of Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses begs God, now show me your glory. And then the Lord replies. And this is what he replies. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We also know that as God reveals who He is in Exodus 34.6, this is what we read as well. This is the description of who God is. And we'll see that it is similar to what Christ, how John describes Christ right now. These Old Testament and New Testament terms actually parallel one another. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a God who is merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. So when we get to First John, John uses the two Greek words to describe the two Hebrew words, which are steadfast love and faithfulness with the words grace and truth. He says Christ is full of grace, which is the steadfast love. God's steadfast love is His favor and kindness bestowed on those who do not deserve it and cannot meet it. His steadfast love is continuous. It's steadfast and never ceases. This is what grace is. 
And then his faithfulness, what does it mean that God is faithful? God holds to his promises. God holds to what he says. And so he is true. He is full of grace and truth. In this description of God, we see echoing throughout the whole Old Testament. Oftentimes, Exodus 34, 6 is quoted by prophets. It's quoted in the Psalms. In Psalm 103, we sing the song, 10,000 Reasons. And we sing about how His mercy is new every morning. He then ultimately in the New Testament, it translates, Christ describes Himself as gentle and lowly in heart. We read that a burning wick He won't quench and a smoldering wick He won't put out. And more than just the parallel of Exodus 34 and John 1, we also see here the contrast of Jesus and Moses, an older glory and a newer glory. Do you remember we read it in Exodus about the glory of God in the, the Ten Commandments? And in 2 Corinthians 3, there is the glory of the new covenant, of the old covenant. And in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying the glory of the old covenant of the law is fading away, but the glory of the new covenant in Christ is increasing in glory. And so, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and here it is. John witnessed about him, and he cried out, This is was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And so, the old covenant law that was pointing to the future, to Christ, was an old glory, but now comes one who is coming with greater glory. You see, the law could only reveal sin, but the law could not remove sin. But Christ comes in verse 16, and there's an explanation with the beginning with the word for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So not only did Christ come, represent, representation of full of grace and truth, but from His fullness of who He is, now we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace is this illustration of this like wave upon wave of God's grace in a life. It's not just one-time grace, it's grace upon grace. It's constant, it's overflowing, it's never ceasing through the work of Christ. In fact, Christ came on earth, became a man, lived a perfect and sinless life, and became our substitute. This is the grace upon grace that we have experienced. He met the demands of the law. He took upon our sin, and He gave us His righteousness. For from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. You see, Christ's fullness, is, it's overflowing. This is the whole idea in the gospel of John that He is the bread of life who satisfies continually, that He is the light of the world, that He is a good shepherd that continually takes care of us because He is good. And you see, ultimately, God's glory is really His goodness when the goodness of God passed by Moses is the goodness of God that is the glory of God. And so from that goodness, we receive grace upon grace. At times when you speak to people or you might yourself even have thought when you were younger in the faith, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and compassion and kindness. But it is not so. 
We see in the Old Testament, we even see the people of Israel asking, Lord, how long will you let the iniquity continue of these nations? And some of these evil and wicked people ask the question, where is your God? All this evil is going on in this world. Where is your God to come and hasten his judgment? We see here that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same. The God of the Old Testament was full of steadfast love and mercy in Christ coming. The exact imprint of the nature of God is full of grace and truth. And he comes in and he ushers a new covenant, not like the old covenant that's passing away that was temporary, but the new covenant. And because of his fulfillment, because he became flesh, because he dwelt among us and was the perfect advocate, sinless man, from him we've all received grace upon grace. And so we have seen so far that Jesus is our advocate, that he's fully human, that Jesus is our Savior, that he is full of grace and truth. And lastly, here in verse 18, we see that Jesus reveals the Father. Now, obviously, we, we've somewhat seen it already in verse 14 as we look to Exodus, but here more specifically, John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, Jesus answers the question for us, who is God like? What is God like? As to his essence, we know that God is invisible. This is why John says no one has ever seen God. We know that God has revealed himself in nature through Psalm 19 and Romans 1. His attributes have been made known, his mighty works in history. But no one can see God himself. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that same only God who was in verses 1, the Word was God who was with God, the only one who is at the Father's side. And what John is saying when he's saying this idea of the Father's side, he's at the bosom of the Father. It really shows this intimacy, this mutual love, this knowledge that Jesus has of the Father. And how wonderful it is that this he, because he is at the Father's side, when he comes on earth, he can represent and fully display to us who God is like. That he is full of grace and truth, that he's compassionate, he's kind, but God is also just. That God is loving and he's not going to let you continue in sin, but because he is full of truth, he is going to present this truth in your life so that you do not continue down that same path. This Son of the Father, who is near the Father, who is also the beloved one at the Father's side, he has made the Father known. And so this intimacy makes it possible for Jesus to speak about heavenly things and to know them. Jesus reveals God to us. We read this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. This word, he has made him known. He has made known or he has, he has exegeted is another way to use to, um, to define this word. Is to explain, is to unfold, is to lead the way. So Jesus Christ explains God to us. He interprets him for us. 
We can't fully understand who God is except through the representation and interpretation of Christ. And this is why in Colossians 1.15, we read that He is the image of the invisible God. And also in Hebrews 1, we read that He is the express image of His person. He's the exact He's the exact blueprint of God Himself, and He comes and He makes Himself known to us. And so Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is also the ambassador. An ambassador is one who came to represent another kingdom. And here Jesus comes, and in His mission, He represents God the Father. And now we know what God is like. Now we see in four Gospels the love of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the compassion of God. We see how God, how Christ dealt with family situations. It's perfect for the holidays. <laughs> how God and Christ dwelt with those who were uh, in sin. How He was compassionate, yet He called them out. We see how Christ also served others. He gave us an example to follow in His footsteps. We see how Christ spoke the truth to the Pharisees, those who were blind, and called them out in, of, in their sin. He was an ambassador. He came to represent God. I think as we were thinking about our own life and as we were thinking about these three ideas, we see that it relates to us as well. For us to be able to do, and ultimately what John's gospel is, is John's gospel is about the mission of Christ. And the mission of Christ is this. The reason why John says he writes the gospel in John 20, 31, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. That's the purpose. That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. And then, in that same chapter, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. Today, as we are thinking about Christ, we're thinking about his incarnation, thinking about his mission, the fact that he is our Savior and our advocate, it also reminds us that the reason why he atoned for our sins, the reason why he saved us, the reason why he brought us to himself is that ultimately, we can be those ambassadors and representatives of God and of the gospel. Christ is the true representation of God. He is fully human. He is full of grace and truth. And he is fully in God. And so I want to ask a few questions as we close for us to think about that which we just heard. I want to ask the first question. The first question is this, is how are we doing? When thinking about the incarnation, we cannot help but think about the humility of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we see that Christ had zero entitlement. He didn't grab onto his rights, but he left the glories of heaven and became man. That is the beauty of the incarnation. And so the question I want to ask is, do we emulate Christ's humility this season? Do we emulate? Do we follow in his steps? Do we think of others' interests above our own, to put it into today's terminology, or what, or what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? When thinking about Christ and what we read today, 
are we or do we have a balance in the way that we live our life? Do we emulate grace and truth? Do we emulate grace and truth? I know that all of us have different personalities here this morning. Some of us are more on the gracious side and others of us are more on the truth side. Some of us are more on the righteous side. So others of us are more on the lenient side of grace. But in Christ, there is this beautiful balance, and this is why we are drawn to Him. I remember Tim Keller once said that uh, if we just think of Christ as the Santa Claus who continually is just up in the North Pole, right, and giving us gifts as this good and kind man, nobody would want a God who is like that, a, a Santa Claus who is just good. There's this balance that we're drawn to. We're drawn to those who are love, but also we're drawn to those who are just. We're drawn to a balance of a father who then is shown through the son, one who is full of truth and who is grace. And we can take this principle even further and think about in our life, do we have that balance in our parenting? Do we have that balance in our marriage? Do we bring that in where we are grace and truth? Where we don't just shy away from hard conversations but bring them up, but do so in a gracious way. See, this is who God is, and Christ came, and He represented the Father to us. And so, do we emulate His grace and truth? And so the second question, the big second question is, how are we toward Christ? We, we've read and we, we just studied that He's our advocate, a yes and amen. He's our Savior, yes and amen. He is, our, he is the ambassador, the representative. So the question is this, if Christ is our advocate, if He's our perfect high priest, do we come to Him? Do we come to Him when we sin? Or do we see God too much of truth and righteousness and not enough as grace and love? Do we come to Him when we are weak, when we're frail, when we are in need? This is why He came on earth to live a life like ours, but live it in a perfect way so that He can understand. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because He was in every way tempted like we are. And so if you're in this holidays thinking about, well, no one understands me, I feel like I am alone, there is one who understands you. There is one who experienced everything that you experience. You can come to him. He's your advocate. If he is the Savior, the next question is this, do you draw, to, do you draw near to him? It's similar to, to coming to him, but it's a little bit different. He is kind and gentle, yet he is loving to the point where He points out our frailties and our weaknesses, and ultimately, why? Because as a Savior, He wants to heal us. In our life, we were like a broken-down home, and He came and He started a restoration project. And He continues to do this restoration project in our life. And so, do we come to Him as the Savior? Understanding that He came to bring the new covenant, and the old covenant has passed away. It was a lesser glory that is no longer on the law in which we build our life, but on Christ and His grace. And, and lastly, the question is this, do we, do we praise Him? In verse 18, we, we see that Christ reveals the Father to us as the perfect representation, right? The, the perfect ambassador. And so the question is, do we praise Him? 
Do we praise Him for revealing the Father, for fulfilling the mission that He came to accomplish here on earth? These are a few of the questions that we can think through together as a church. That we can come to Him, draw near to Him, and praise Him during this time for all who Christ is. And I wanted to just bring it back to this idea that I started off with. And this idea was that the way that we believe, who we believe Jesus to be will dictate how we treat Him. And so have you been challenged to see Christ more clearly this morning? This was the whole purpose of John the Apostle, was to present Christ in a clear light so that ultimately we would treat him in a way that glorifies him and that brings good into our life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study it and be encouraged, that you have left for us your, your, your thoughts, your desires, and, and ultimately you've revealed yourself to us. And Jesus, we thank you that you were humble and you <clears throat> took on human nature. You took on flesh so that you could represent and reveal to us the Father, so that you could become tangible, so that God who was, was unknowable would become knowable. We thank you so much for that, for it really is just your constant grace and your love and kindness that revealed all this and brought it to a reality. And so we thank you for that. Help us to, to see you in the true light of who you are, and help us to draw near to you and ultimately praise you for your kindness. We pray for your guidance and your help in Jesus' name.